was doable, but only if everything was coordinated perfectly. The Gloomwalkers were in place, but the main force wasn't ready to make its move yet. And so, they waited. I'm worried. Des finally conceded. Taking that outpost won't be easy. Once we get the go-ahead, there's no margin for error. We have to be perfect. If they've got any surprises waiting for us, we could be in trouble. Adonar spit on the ground. I knew it. You've got a bad feeling, don't you? This is his score all over again. His score had been a disaster. After Kashyyyk fell, the surviving Republic soldiers fled to the neighboring world of Trandosha. Twenty units of Sith troopers, including the Gloomwalkers, were sent in pursuit. They caught up to the Republic survivors on the desert plains outside the city of Hiskor. A day of savage fighting left many dead on both sides, but no definitive victor. Dez had been uneasy throughout the battle, though at the time he hadn't been able to say why. His unease had grown as night fell, and both sides retreated to opposite ends of the battlefield to regroup. The Trandoshans had struck a few hours later. The pitch-black night wasn't a problem for the reptilian Trandoshans. They could see into the infrared spectrum. They seemed to come out of nowhere, materializing from the darkness like a nightmare given substance. Unlike the Wookiees, the Trandoshans weren't allied with either side in the Galactic Civil War. The bounty hunters and mercenaries of Hiskor cut a swath of destruction through the ranks of Republic and Sith alike, not caring whom they fought, just as long as they came away with trophies from their kills. Details of the massacre were never officially released. Dez had been at the very center of the carnage, and even he could barely piece together what had happened. The attack caught the Gloomwalkers, like every other unit, completely off guard. By the time the sun rose, nearly half the Sith troops had been cut down. Dez lost a lot of friends in the slaughter. Friends he might have saved if he had paid more attention to the dark premonition he'd felt when he first set foot on that forsaken desert world. And he vowed he'd never let the Gloomwalkers get caught in a slaughter like that again. In the end, his score paid a heavy price for the ambush. Reinforcements were sent in from Kashyyyk to overwhelm both the Republic forces and the Trandoshans. It took less than a week for the Sith to claim victory, and the once proud city was sacked and razed to the ground. Many of the Trandoshans simply gave up the fight to defend their homes and offered their services to their conquerors. They were bounty hunters and mercenaries by trade and hunters by nature. They didn't care whom they were working for as long as there was a chance to do some more killing. Needless to say, the Sith had welcomed them with open arms. This isn't going to be a repeat of Hiskor, Des assured his nervous companion. It was true he had an uneasy feeling once again, but this time it was different. Something big was going to happen. But Des couldn't say for sure whether it would be good or bad. Come on, Dez. Adonar pressed. Go talk to Ulibor. He listens to you sometimes. And tell him what? Adonar threw his hands up in exasperation. I don't know. Tell him about your bad feeling. Make him get on the comm to HQ and tell them to pull us back. Or convince them to send us in. Just don't leave us sitting out here like a bunch of dead womp rats rotten in the sun. 
Before Des could answer, one of the junior troopers, a young woman named Lucia, ran up and snapped off a crisp salute. Sergeant, Lieutenant Ulibor wants you to assemble the troops by his tent. He'll address them in thirty minutes, she said, her voice earnest and excited. Des flashed a smile at his friend. I think we've finally got our orders. The soldiers stood at attention as the lieutenant and Des reviewed the troops. As it always did, the inspection consisted of Ulibor moving up and down the ranks, nodding and giving half-muttered approvals. It was mostly for show, a chance for Ulibor to feel as if he had something to do with the success of the mission. Once they were done, the lieutenant marched to the front of the column and turned to face the troops. Des stood alone in front of the unit, his back to them, so he could be face to face with his superior officer. Everyone here is familiar with our mission objective, Ulibor began, his voice unusually high-pitched and loud. Des guessed he was trying to sound authoritative, but it came across as shrill. I'll leave the specifics of the mission to the sergeant here, he continued. Our task is not an easy one, but the days of the Gloomwalkers getting easy jobs are long gone. I don't have much else to say. I know you're all as eager as I am to end this pointless waiting. That's why I'm happy to inform you that we've been given the order to move out. We hit the Republic outpost in one hour. Horrified gasps and loud whispers of disbelief rose up from the ranks. Ulibor stepped back as if he'd been slapped. He'd obviously been expecting cheers and exultation, and was rattled by the sudden anger and lack of discipline. Gloomwalkers, hold! Des barked. He stepped up to the lieutenant and lowered his voice. Sir, are you certain those were the orders? Move in in one hour? Are you certain they didn't mean one hour after nightfall? Are you questioning me, sergeant? Ulibor snapped, making no attempt to keep his own voice down. No, sir. It's just that if we leave in one hour, it'll still be light out. They'll see us coming. By the time they see us, we'll already be close enough to jam their transmitters, the lieutenant countered. They won't be able to signal back to the base camp. It's not that, sir. It's the gunships. They've got three repulsor craft equipped with heavy repeating flash cannons. If we try to take out the outpost during the day, those things will mow us down from the sky. It's a suicide mission! Someone shouted out from the ranks. Ulibor's eyes became narrow slits and his face turned red. The main army is moving out at dusk, Sergeant, he said through tightly clenched teeth. They want to cross the valley in darkness and hit the Republic base camp at first light. Then there's no reason for us to move so soon, Des replied, struggling to remain calm. If they start at dusk, it's going to take at least three hours before they reach the valley from their current position. That gives us plenty of time to take the outpost down before they get here, even if we wait until after dark. It's obvious you don't understand what's really going on, Sergeant. Ulibor spoke as if arguing with a stubborn child. The main force isn't going to start moving until after we report our mission is complete. That's why we have to move now. It made sense. 
The generals wouldn't want to risk the main force until they knew for certain the valley was secure. But sending them in during the light of day guaranteed that the Gloomwalker's casualty rate would increase fivefold. You have to come back to HQ and explain the situation to them, Des said. We can't take on those gunships in the air. We have to wait till they ground them for the night. You have to make them understand what we're up against. The lieutenant acted as if he hadn't even heard him. The generals give the orders to me, and I give them to you, he snapped. Not the other way around. The army is moving out at dusk, and that's not going to change to fit your schedule, Sergeant. They won't have to change their plans, Des insisted. If we leave as soon as it gets dark, we'll still have that outpost down by the time they reach the valley. But sending us in now is just... Enough! The lieutenant snapped. Quit braying like a bantha cut off from its herd! You have your orders, now follow them! Or do you want to see what happens to soldiers who defy their superior officers? Suddenly it was clear to Dez what was really going on. Ulibor knew the order was a mistake. But he was too scared to do anything about it. The order must have come directly from one of the Dark Lords. Ulibor would rather lead his troops into a slaughter than face the wrath of a Sith Master. But Dez wasn't about to let him drive the Gloomwalkers to their doom. This wasn't going to become a repeat of his score. He hesitated for only a second, before slamming his fist into his lieutenant's chin, knocking him cold. There was a stunned silence from the rest of the troops as Ulibor slumped to the ground. Dez quickly took away the fallen officer's weapons, then turned and pointed at a pair of the newest recruits. You too. Keep an eye on the lieutenant. Make sure he's comfortable if he wakes up, but don't let him anywhere near the comm. To the communications officer, he said, just before dusk, send a message back to HQ telling them our mission is complete, so they can start moving the main force into the valley. That will give us two hours to achieve our objective before they get here. Turning to address the rest of the troops, he paused to let the gravity of his next words sink in. What I've done here is mutiny, he said slowly. There's a chance anyone who follows me from here on in will face a court-martial when this is over. If any of you feel you can't follow my orders after what I've done here today, speak up now, and I'll surrender command to Senior Trooper Adenar for the rest of the mission. He gazed out across the soldiers. For a second, nobody spoke. Then, as one, they all raised their fists and gave two light raps on their chest, just above the heart. Overwhelmed with pride, Dez had to swallow hard before he could give his final order to the troops. His troops. Gloomwalkers! Dismissed! The ranks dispersed in groups of twos and threes, the soldiers whispering quietly to one another. Adana broke away from the rest and came up to Dez. Ulibor is not going to forget this, he said quietly. What are you going to do about him? After we take that outpost, they'll want to pin a medal on our commanding officer. Dez replied, I'm betting he'd rather shut up and accept it than let anyone know what really happened. Adenar grunted, Guess you got it all worked out. Not quite, Dez admitted. I'm still not sure how we're going to take down that outpost. 
Chapter 7 The outpost was located in a clearing on the top of a plateau overlooking the valley. Under the cover of night, the Gloomwalkers had moved silently through the jungle until they had it surrounded. Dez had broken the unit up into four squads, each approaching from a different side. Each squad carried an interference box with it. They had set up and activated the I-boxes once they had closed to within half a kilometer of the base, jamming all transmissions within their perimeter. The squads had continued on to the edges of the clearing, then stopped, waiting for Dez to give them the signal to move in. With no communication among the squads, the I-boxes jammed their own equipment as well. The most reliable signal was the sound of blaster fire. As he stared across the clearing at the three repulsor craft sitting on the landing pad atop the outpost's roof, Dez felt a familiar feeling in the pit of his stomach. All soldiers felt the same thing going into battle, whether they admitted it or not. Fear. Fear of failure. Fear of dying. Fear of watching their friends die. Fear of being wounded and living out the rest of their days crippled or maimed. The fear was always there and it would devour you if you let it. Dez knew how to turn that fear to his own advantage. Take what makes you weak and turn it into something that makes you strong. Transform the fear into anger and hate. Hatred of the enemy. Hatred of the Republic and the Jedi. The hate gave him strength, and the strength brought him victory. For Dez, the transformation came easily once the fighting started. Thanks to his abusive father, he'd been turning fear into anger and hate ever since he was a child. Maybe that was why he was such a good soldier. Maybe that was why the others looked to him for leadership. They were waiting on his signal even now, waiting for him to take the first shot. As soon as he did, they'd charge the outpost. The gloom walkers were outnumbered nearly two to one. They'd need the advantage of surprise to even out the odds. But those gunships were a problem Dez hadn't anticipated. The clearing was surrounded by bright lights that illuminated everything within a hundred meters of the outpost itself. And even though the repulsor craft were grounded, there was a soldier stationed in the open flatbed at the rear of each vehicle, operating the turrets. The armored walls of the flatbed rose to waist height to give the gunner some cover, and the turret itself was heavily shielded to protect it from enemy fire. From the landing pad on the roof, the gunners had a clear view of the surrounding area. If he fired that first shot, the other units would charge out into the clearing and right into a storm of heavy repeating blaster fire. They'd be torn apart like Zucca, tossed into a rancor pit. What's the matter, Sarge? One of the soldiers in his squad asked. It was Lucia the junior trooper who delivered Ulibor's orders to him earlier. What are we waiting for? It was too late to call off the mission. The main army was already on the move. By the time Dez got back to camp to warn them, they'd be halfway through the valley. He glanced down at the young recruit and noticed the scope on her weapon. Lucia was carrying a TC-17 long-range blaster rifle. Her knuckles were white from gripping her weapon too tightly in fear and anticipation. She'd seen only minor combat duty before being assigned to the Gloomwalkers, but Dez knew she was one of the best shots in the unit. The TC-17 was only good for a dozen shots before the power cell had to be switched out, 
but it had a range well over 300 meters. Each of the four squads had a sniper assigned to it. When the fighting began, their job was to watch the perimeter of the battle and make sure none of the Republic soldiers escaped to warn their main camp. See those soldiers standing in the rear of the gunships? The ones working the flash cannons? He asked her. She nodded. If we don't get rid of them somehow, they're going to turn our squads into turret fodder about ten seconds after this battle begins. She nodded again, her eyes wide and scared. Des tried to keep his voice even and professional to calm her down. I want you to think about this very carefully now, Trooper. How fast do you think you could take them out from here? She hesitated. I... I don't even know if I could, Sarge. Not all of them. Not from this angle. I could get a line on the first one, but as soon as he goes down, I doubt the others will stand still long enough for me to take aim. They'll probably duck down in the flatbed for cover. And even if I take the gunners out, there's half a dozen more soldiers on that roof who would jump in to take their places. I can't drop nine targets that fast by myself, Sarge. Nobody can. Des bit his lip and tried to figure out an answer to the problem. There were only three gunships. If he could somehow get a message to the sniper in each squad and have them fire at exactly the same time, they might be able to take out the unsuspecting gunners, though they'd still have to stop the other six soldiers from replacing them. He cut off his own line of thought with a silent curse. It would never work. Because of the I-boxes, there was no way to get a message to the other squads in time. Taking the sniper rifle from Lucia's hands, he brought the weapon up and set his eye to the scope to get a better look at the situation. He scanned the roof quickly from side to side, noting the position of every Republic soldier. With the magnification of the scope, he could make out their features clear enough to see their lips moving as they spoke. The situation was practically hopeless. The outpost was the key to taking Fasira, and the turrets on the roof were the key to taking the outpost. But Des was out of options and almost out of time. He felt the fear stronger than ever and took a deep breath to focus his mind. Adrenaline began to pump through his veins as he redirected the fear to give him strength and power. He lined the blaster's scope up on one of the gunners, and a red veil fell across his vision. And then he fired. He acted on instinct, moving too quickly to let his conscious thoughts get in the way. He didn't even see the first soldier drop. The scope was already moving to his next target. The second gunner had just enough time to open his eyes wide in surprise before Des fired and moved on to the third. But she'd seen the first gunner go down and had already dropped down behind the armored walls of the gunship's flatbed for cover. Des resisted the impulse to fire wildly and moved the scope in a tight circle, looking in vain for a clean shot. The sound of blaster fire exploded in the night along with shouts and pounding feet as the Gloomwalkers burst from their cover and rushed the outpost. They followed their orders to the letter, charging out at the sound of the first shot. Des knew he had only a few seconds before the turrets opened up on them and turned the clearing into a killing field. But he couldn't see the shot to take out the third gunner. He whipped the rifle around in desperation, looking for a new target on the roof. He set his sights on a soldier crouched down low beside a small canister. The soldier wasn't moving, and he'd covered his face with his hands as if shielding his vision. The blast from Dez's weapon hit him square in the chest, just as the device at the soldier's feet 
detonated. Flash canister! Lucia screamed, but her warning came too late. The view through the scope vanished in a brilliant white flare, temporarily blinding Des. But with his vision gone, he could suddenly see everything clearly. He knew the position of every soldier, even as they all scrambled for cover. He could track exactly where they were and where they were going. The soldier in the third turret was training the cannons on the incoming wave of troopers. In the excitement, she'd popped her head up just slightly above the walls of the flatbed, leaving the smallest of targets exposed. Dez took her with a single shot, the bolt going in cleanly through one ear hole on her helmet and out the other. It was as if time had slowed down. Moving with a calm and deadly precision, he trained his rifle on the next target, taking her through the heart. Barely a moment later, he got the soldier beside her right between his cold blue eyes. Dez took one man in the back as he ran for the nearest gunship. Another was halfway up one of the flatbed's ladders when a bolt sliced through his thigh, knocking him off balance. He fell from the ladder, and Dez put another shot through his chest before he hit the ground. It had taken less than three seconds to wipe out eight of the nine soldiers. The last one made a run for the edge, hoping to escape by diving off the roof on the far side of the building. Dez let him run. He could feel the terror coming in waves off his doomed prey. He savored it for as long as he could. The soldier leapt from the rooftop and seemed to hang in mid-air for a second. Dez fired his last three shots into his body, draining the weapon's power cell. He handed the weapon back to Lucia, blinking rapidly at the tears welling up as his eyes tried to soothe their damaged retinas. The effects of the flash canister were only temporary. His vision was already beginning to return, and the miraculous second sight he'd experienced was slipping away. Rubbing his eyes, he knew now was not the time to think about what had just happened. He'd eliminated the gunners, but his troops were still outnumbered. They needed him down in the hot zone, not here on the edges of the battle. Keep an eye on that roof, he ordered Lucia. If any of those Republic mud crutches appear on top, take them out before they get to the gunships. She didn't reply. Her mouth was hanging open in amazement at what she'd just witnessed. Dez grabbed her by the shoulder and gave her a rough shake. Snap out of it, trooper! You've got a job to do! She shook her head to gather her senses and nodded, then loaded another energy cell into her weapon. Satisfied, Dez pulled out the 21D and charged across the clearing, eager to join in the battle. Three hours later, it was all over. The mission had been a complete success. The outpost was theirs, and the Republic had no idea that thousands of Sith troopers were marching through the valley to attack them at first light. The battle itself had been short but bloody. Forty-six Republic soldiers dead, and nine of Dez's own. Every time a Gloomwalker went down, part of Dez felt he'd failed somehow. But given the nature of their mission, Keeping the casualties under double digits was more than he could have reasonably hoped for. Once their objective was secured, he'd left Adenar and a small contingent to hold the outpost. With Dez in the lead, the rest of the unit marched back to its base camp. Along the way, he tried to ignore the hushed whispers and furtive looks the rest of the company was giving him. 
Lucia had spread the word of his amazing shooting, and it was the talk of the unit. None of them was brave enough to say anything to his face, but he could hear snippets of conversation from the ranks behind him. Honestly, he couldn't blame them. Looking back, even he wasn't sure what had happened. Dez was a good marksman, but he was no sniper. Yet somehow, he'd managed to pull off a dozen impossible shots with a weapon he'd never fired before, most of them after being blinded by a flash canister. It was beyond unbelievable. It was as if, when he'd lost his vision, some mysterious power had taken over and guided his actions. It was exhilarating. But at the same time, it was terrifying. Where had this power come from? And why couldn't he control it? He was so wrapped up in his thoughts that at first he didn't even notice the strangers waiting at their base camp. It was only after they stepped up and slapped the stun cuffs on his wrists that he realized what was going on. Welcome back, Sergeant. Ulibor's voice was filled with bile. Dez glanced around. A dozen enforcers, the military security of the Sith Army, were standing with weapons drawn. Ulibor stood behind them, a deep bruise on his face where Dez had struck him. In the background, Dez could see the two junior recruits he'd left in charge of Ulibor. They were staring down at the ground, embarrassed and ashamed. Did you really think those raw recruits would keep their commanding officer trussed up like some kind of prisoner? Ulibor taunted him from behind the protective wall of armed guards. Did you really believe they would follow you in your madness? That madness saved our lives, Lucia shouted. Dez held up his shackled hands to silence her. This situation could get out of hand far too easily. When nothing else happened, the lieutenant seemed to gain some courage. He stepped out from behind the protective wall of enforcers and over to Dez. I warned you about disobeying orders, he sneered. Now you get to see firsthand how the Brotherhood of Darkness deals with mutinous soldiers. A few of the Gloomwalkers began to reach slowly for their weapons, but Dez shook his head and they froze. The enforcers already had their blasters drawn and weren't afraid to use them. The troopers wouldn't manage to get off even a single shot. What's the matter, Sergeant? Ulibor pressed, drawing closer to his defeated enemy. Too close. Nothing to say. Dez knew he could kill the lieutenant with one quick move. The enforcers would take him out, but at least Ulibor would go with him. Every fiber of his being wanted to lash out and end both their lives in an orgy of blood and blaster fire. But he managed to fight the impulse. There was no point in throwing his life away. A court-martial would likely end in a death sentence, but at least, if he went to trial, he'd have a chance. Ulibor stepped up and slapped him once across the face, then spit on his boots and stepped back. Take him away, he said to the enforcers, turning his back on Dez. As Dez was taken away, he couldn't help but see the look in the eyes of Lucia and the troopers whose lives he'd saved only hours ago. He had a feeling the next time the unit went into combat, Ulibor would suffer an unfortunate and fatal accident. That realization brought the hint of a smile to his lips.
The enforcers marched him through the jungle for hours, weapons drawn and trained on him the entire time. They only lowered them when they reached the sentries on the perimeter of the main Sith camp. Prisoner for a court-martial, one of the enforcers said flatly, Go tell Lord Kopesh. One of the sentries saluted and ran off. They marched Dez through the camp toward the brig. He saw recognition in the eyes of many of the soldiers. With his height and bald head, he was an imposing figure, and many of the troops had heard of his exploits. Seeing a formerly ideal soldier being brought before a court-martial was sure to leave an impression. They reached the camp's makeshift prison, a small containment field over a 3x3x3-meter pit that served as a holding area for captured spies and POWs. The enforcers had relieved him of his weapons when they first took him into custody. Now they did a more thorough search and stripped him of all other personal effects. Then they shut down the containment field and roughly tossed him in, not even bothering to release his cuffs. He landed awkwardly on the hard ground at the bottom of the hole. As he struggled to his feet, he heard an unmistakable hum as the field was activated once again, sealing him in. The pit was empty, other than Des himself. The Sith didn't tend to keep prisoners around for long. He began to wonder if he'd made a serious mistake. He'd hoped his past service might buy him some leniency at his trial, but now he realized his reputation might actually work against him. The Sith Masters weren't known for their tolerance or their mercy. He'd defied a direct order. There was a good chance they'd decide to make a harsh example of him. He couldn't say how long they'd left him at the bottom of the pit. After a while, he fell asleep, exhausted by the battle and the forced march. He slipped in and out of consciousness. At one point, it was light outside his prison, and he knew day must have come. The next time he came to, it was dark again. They hadn't fed him yet. His stomach was growling in protest as it gnawed away at itself. His throat was parched and dry. His tongue felt as if it had swollen up large enough to choke him. Despite this, there was a slowly increasing pressure on his bladder. But he didn't want to relieve himself. The pit stank enough already. Maybe they were just going to leave him here to die a slow and lonely death. Given the rumors he'd heard of Sith torture, he'd almost hoped that was the case. But he hadn't given up. Not yet. When he heard the sound of approaching footsteps, he scrambled to his feet and stood straight and tall, even though his hands were still cuffed in front of him. Through the containment field, he could just make out the blurred forms of several guards standing on the edge of the pit, along with another figure, wearing a heavy, dark cloak. Take him to my ship, the cloaked figure said in a deep, rasping voice. I will deal with this one on Koriban. Chapter 8 Dez never got a clear look at the man who'd ordered his transfer. By the time they'd gotten him out of the pit, the cloaked figure had vanished. They gave him food and water, then let him clean and refresh himself. Though he was freed from the cuffs, he was still under heavy guard as he boarded a small transport ship heading for Korriban. Nobody spoke to him on the trip, and Dez didn't know what was going on. At least he wasn't cuffed anymore. He chose to take that as a good sign. 
They arrived in the middle of the day. He'd expected them to touch down at Dreshta, the only city in the dark and forbidding world. Instead, the ship landed at a starport built atop an ancient temple overlooking a desolate valley. A chill wind blew across the landing pad as he disembarked, but it didn't bother Des. After the stale air of the pit, any breeze felt good. He felt a shiver go down his spine as his foot touched Korriban's surface. He'd heard that this had once been a place of great power, though now only the merest shadows remained. There was an undercurrent of malice here. He'd felt it as soon as the transport had entered the bleak planet's atmosphere. From this vantage point, he could make out other temples scattered across the world's desert surface. Even at this distance, he could perceive the eroded rock and crumbling stone of the once grand entrances. Beyond the valley, the city of Dreshta was a mere speck on the horizon. He was met on the landing pad by a hooded figure. He could tell right away this wasn't the same one who had come to him in the pit. This person had neither the size nor the impressive bearing of his liberator. Even through the containment field, Des had been able to sense his commanding presence. This figure, which Des now thought to be female, motioned for him to follow. Silently, she led him down a flight of stone steps and into the temple itself. They crossed the landing and ascended another set of stairs, then repeated the pattern, working their way level by level down from the temple's apex to the ground below. There were doors and passages leading off from each landing, and Des could hear snippets of sound and conversation echoing from them, though he could never quite tell what was being said. She didn't speak and Des knew better than to break the silence himself. Technically, he was still a prisoner. For all he knew, she was leading him to his court-martial. He wasn't about to make things worse by asking foolish questions. When they reached the bottom of the building, she led him to a stone archway with yet another flight of stairs. These were different, however. They were narrow and dark, and wound their way down until they vanished from sight deep in the bowels of the ground. Without a word, his guide handed him a torch she'd taken from a bracket on the wall and then stepped aside. Wondering what was going on, Des made his way carefully down the steep staircase. He couldn't say how much deeper he went. It was difficult to maintain any perspective in the narrow confines of the stairwell. After several minutes, he reached the bottom only to find a long hallway stretching out before him. At the end of the hallway, he encountered a single room. The room was dark and filled with shadow. Only a few torches sputtered on the stone wall, their dying flames barely able to pierce the gloom. Des paused at the threshold, letting his eyes adjust. He could just make out a dim figure inside. It beckoned to him. Come forward. He felt a chill, though the room was far from cold. The air itself was electric, filled with a power he could actually feel. He was surprised that he didn't feel afraid. He recognized what he felt as the chill of anticipation. As Des moved deeper into the room, the features of the shrouded figure became clear, revealing himself to be a twillick. Even under the loose-fitting robe he wore, Des could see he was thick and heavyset. He stood nearly two meters tall, Easily the largest Twi'lek Des had ever met, though not quite as large as Des himself. 
His leku wound down his broad chest and wrapped back up around his muscular neck and shoulders. His eyes glowed orange beneath his brow, mirroring the flickering torches. He smiled, revealing the sharp, pointed teeth common to his species. I am Lord Gobej of the Sith, he said. At that moment, Des knew without a doubt this was the cloaked one who had come to him in the pit, and he gave a slight bow of his head in acknowledgement. I am to be your inquisitor, Lord Kopej explained, his voice showing no emotion. I alone will determine your fate. Rest assured, my judgment will be final. Dez nodded again. The Twilik fixed his burning orange eyes on Dez. You are no friend of the Jedi or their Republic. It wasn't a question, but Dez felt compelled to answer anyway. What have they ever done for me? Exactly, Kopej said with a cruel smile. I understand you have fought many battles against the Republic forces. Your fellow troopers speak highly of you. The Sith have need of men like you if we are to win this war. He paused. You were a model soldier. Until you disobeyed a direct order. The order was a mistake, Dez said. His throat had grown so dry and tight that he had trouble getting the words out. Why did you refuse to attack the outpost during the day? Are you a coward? A coward wouldn't have completed the mission, Dez replied sharply, stung by the accusation. Kopej tilted his head to the side and waited. Attacking in the daylight was a tactical mistake, Dez continued, trying to press his point. Ulubar should have relayed that information back to command, but he was too scared. Ulubar was the coward, not me. He would rather risk death at the hands of the Republic than face the Brotherhood of Darkness. I prefer not to throw my life away needlessly. I can see that from your service record, Kopej said. Kashik, Trandosha, Fasira. If these reports are accurate, you have performed incredible feats during your time with the Gloom Walkers. Feats some would claim to be impossible. Dez bristled at the implication. The reports are accurate, he replied. I have no doubt that they are. Kopej either hadn't noticed or didn't care about the tone of Dez's reply. Do you know why I brought you to Goriban? Dez was beginning to realize that this wasn't really a court-martial after all. It was some kind of test, though for what he still wasn't sure. I feel I've been chosen for something. Kopej gave him another sinister smile. Good. Your mind works quickly. What do you know of the Force? Not much. Des admitted with a shrug. It's something the Jedi believe in, some great power that's supposed to be just floating out there in the universe somewhere. And what do you know of the Jedi? I know they believe themselves to be guardians of the Republic, Des replied, making no attempt to hide his contempt. I know they wield great influence in the Senate. I know many believe they have mystical powers. 
and the Brotherhood of Darkness. Des considered his words more carefully this time. You are the leaders of our army and the sworn enemy of the Jedi. Many believe that you, like them, have unnatural abilities. But you do not. Des hesitated, struggling to come up with the answer he thought Corpej wanted to hear. In the end, he couldn't figure out what his Inquisitor was looking for, so he simply told the truth. I believe most of the stories are greatly exaggerated. Corpej nodded. A common enough belief. Those who do not understand the ways of the Force regard such tales as myth or legend. But the Force is real, and those who wield it have power you can't even imagine. You've seen many battles, but you have not experienced the real war. While troops vie for control of worlds and moons, the Jedi and Sith Masters seek to destroy each other. We are being driven toward an inevitable and final confrontation. The faction that survives, Sith or Jedi, will determine the fate of the galaxy for the next thousand years. True victory in this war will not come through armies, but through the Brotherhood of Darkness. Our greatest weapon is the Force, and those individuals who have the power to command it. Individuals like you. He paused to let his words sink in before continuing. You are special, Des. You have many remarkable talents. These talents are manifestations of the Force, and they have served you well as a soldier. But you have only scratched the surface of your gift. The Force is real. It exists all around us. You can feel the power of it in this room. Can you sense it? Des hesitated only a moment before nodding. I feel it. Hot, like a fire waiting to explode. The power of the dark side. The heat of passion and emotion. I can feel it in you as well. Burning beneath the surface. Burning like your anger. It makes you strong. Kopej closed his eyes and tilted his head back, as if basking in the heat. The tips of his head tails twitched ever so slightly. The only sound was the faint crackle of flame from the torches. A bead of sweat rolled down the crown of Dez's bare scalp and along the back of his neck. He didn't wipe it away, though he did shift his feet uncomfortably as it trickled its way between his shoulder blades. The slight movement seemed to snap the Twi'lek out of his trance. He didn't speak again for several seconds, but he studied Dez intently with his piercing gaze. You have touched the Force in the past, but your abilities are an insignificant speck beside the power of a true Sith Master. He finally said, There is great potential in you. If you stay here on Korriban, we can teach you to unleash it. Dez was speechless. You would no longer be a trooper on the front lines, Kopej continued. If you accept my offer, that part of your life is over. You will be trained in the ways of the dark side. You will become one of the Brotherhood of Darkness. 
and you will not return to the Gloom Walkers. Des felt his heart pounding, his head swimming. As long as he could remember, he'd known he was special because of his unique talents. And now he was being told that his abilities were nothing compared with what he could really accomplish. Still, part of him balked at the idea of leaving his unit without even having a chance to say goodbye. He considered Adenar, Lucia, and the others as more than just fellow soldiers. They were his friends. Could he really abandon them like this? even for the chance to join the Sith Masters. He recalled one of the last things Groshek had ever said to him. Don't count on others for help. In the end, each of us is in this alone. The survivors are those who know how to look out for themselves. Everything he'd had, he'd given to his unit. He'd saved their lives too many times to count. And in the end, when the Enforcers had come to take him away, they'd been powerless to save him. They would have tried if he'd let them, but they would have failed. Dez realized the truth. His unit, his friends, could do nothing for him now. He could rely only on himself, like always. He'd be a fool to turn this opportunity down. I am honored, Master Kopej. And I gratefully accept your offer. The way of the Sith is not for the weak, the big Twi'lek warned. Those who falter will be left behind. There was something ominous in his tone. I won't be left behind, Daz replied unfazed. That remains to be seen, Kopej noted. Then he added, This is a new beginning for you, Daz. A new life. Many of the students who come here take a new name for themselves. They leave their old life behind. Des had no desire to hang on to any part of his old life. An abusive father, the brutality of working the mines in Apatros. He had been seeking a new life for as long as he could remember. The Gloomwalkers had offered an escape, but it had been a temporary one. Now, he had a chance to leave his past behind forever. All he had to do was embrace the Brotherhood of Darkness and its teachings. And yet for reasons he couldn't explain, he felt the cold grip of fear closing in on him. The fear made him hesitate. Do you wish to choose a new name for yourself, Des? Kopej asked, possibly sensing his reluctance. Do you wish to be reborn? Des nodded. Kopej smiled once more. And by what name shall we call you now? The fear would not stop him. He would seize the fear, transform it, and make it his own. He would take what had once made him weak and use it to make himself strong. My name is Bane. Bane of the Sith. Lord Cordis, exalted master of the Sith Academy on Korriban, scratched gently at his chin with long, talon-like fingers. The student you have brought me, this Bane, has never been trained in the ways of the Force. Kope shook his head and twitched his leku ever so slightly in annoyance. As I told you before, Cordis, he grew up on Apatros a world controlled by the Oro Company. 
Yet you managed to find this young man and bring him here to the academy. It seems almost too convenient, the heavyset Twilix snarled. This is not a plot against you, Cordis. That is no longer our way. We are a brotherhood now. Remember, you are too suspicious. Cordis laughed. <laughs> not suspicious. Cautious. It has helped me to maintain my position here among so many powerful and ambitious young Sith. He is as powerful as any of them, Corpej insisted. But he is also older. We prefer to find our students when they are younger and more... malleable. Now you sound like a Jedi, Corpej sneered. They seek younger and younger pupils, hoping to find them pure and innocent. In time, they will refuse any who are not infants. We must be quick to pluck those they leave behind. Besides, he continued, Bane is too strong to simply pass over, even for the Jedi. We are lucky we found him before they did. Yes, lucky. Cordis echoed, his voice dripping with sarcasm. His arrival here seems to be an incredible turn of many fortuitous events. Quite lucky indeed. Some might see it that way, Kopesh admitted. Others might see it as something more. Destiny, perhaps. There was silence while Cordis considered his longtime rival's words. The other acolytes have been training for many years. He will be far behind, he said at last. He will catch up, if given the chance, Kopej insisted. And I wonder, will the others give him that chance? Not if they're smart. I'm afraid we may simply be throwing away one of Lord Khan's best troopers. We both know the Jedi won't be defeated by soldiers, Kompesh snapped. I'd gladly trade a thousand of our best troopers for even one Sith Master. Cordis seemed taken aback by his passionate reaction. He's that strong, is he, this Bane? Kompesh nodded. I think he might be the one we've been searching for. He could be the Sithari. Before he can claim that title, Cordis said with a cunning smile, he'll have to survive his training. Part 2 Chapter 9 Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. Kopej was gone, rejoining Khan's army and the war being waged against the Jedi and the Republic. Bane had remained behind at the Sith Academy on Korriban to learn the ways of the Sith. His first lesson began the next morning, at the feet of Lord Cordis himself. 
The tenets of the Sith are more than just words to be memorized, the master of the academy explained to his newest apprentice. Learn them. Understand them. They will lead you to the true power of the Force, the power of the dark side. Cordes was taller than Kopesh, taller even than Bane. He was very thin and clad in a black, loose-fitting robe with the hood drawn back to fall across his shoulders. He might have been human, but something about his appearance seemed off. His skin was an unnatural, chalky hue, made even more obvious by the glittering gems encrusting the many rings on his long fingers. His eyes were dark and sunken. His teeth were sharp and pointed, and his fingernails were curved and wicked talons. Bane knelt before him, similarly clad in a dark robe with the hood drawn back. Earlier this morning, he'd heard the code of the Sith for the first time, and the words were still fresh and mysterious. They swirled through the undercurrents of his mind, occasionally bubbling up into his conscious thoughts as he tried to absorb the deeper meaning behind them. Peace is a lie. There is only passion. He knew the first tenet to be true, at least. His entire life was proof of that. Kopesh tells me you come to us as a raw apprentice, Cordis noted. He says you have never been trained in the ways of the Force. I'm a quick learner, Bane assured him. Yes, and uh, strong in the power of the dark side. But the same can be said of all who come here. Not sure how to respond, Bane decided the wisest course of action was to stay silent. What do you know of this academy? Cordis finally asked. The students here are taught to use the Force. They are taught the secrets of the dark side by you and the other Sith Lords. After a brief hesitation, he added, And I know there are many other academies like this one. No, Cordis corrected. Not like this one. It is true we have other training facilities spread across our ever-growing empire, places where individuals with promise are taught to control and use their power, but each facility is unique, and where individual students are sent depends on how much potential we see in them. Those with a noticeable but limited ability are sent to Honegur, Gentis, or Gamor to become Sith warriors or marauders. There they are taught to channel their emotions into mindless rage and battle fury. The power of the dark side transforms them into ravaging beasts of death and destruction to be unleashed against our enemies. Through passion, I gain strength, Bane thought. But when he spoke, he said, Brute strength alone is not enough to bring down the Republic. True, Cordis agreed. From the tone of his voice, Bane knew he had said what his master wanted to hear. Those with greater ability are sent to worlds that have allied with our cause to destroy the Republic. Ryloth, Umbara, Narshada. These students become creatures of shadow, learning to use the dark side for secrecy, deception, and manipulation. Those who survive the training become unstoppable assassins, 
capable of drawing on the dark side to kill their targets without ever moving a muscle. Yet even they are no match for the Jedi, Bane added, thinking he understood the direction the lesson was taking. Precisely, his master agreed. The academies on Dathomir and Iridonia are most similar to the one here. Their apprentices study under Sith masters. Those who succeed in their training become the adepts and acolytes who swell the ranks of our armies. They are the counterparts to the Jedi Knights who stand in the way of our ultimate conquest. But even as the Jedi Knights must answer to the Jedi Masters, so must the Adepts and Acolytes answer to the Sith Lords. And those with the potential to become Sith Lords, and only those with such potential, are trained here on Korriban. Bane felt a shiver of excitement. Through strength I gain power. Korriban was the ancestral home of the Sith. Cordus explained, This planet is a place of great power. The dark side lives and breathes in the very core of this world. He paused and slowly extended his skeletal hand palm upward. It almost seemed as if he was cradling something unseen, something precious and invaluable in his claw-like fingers. This temple we stand in was built many thousands of years ago to collect and focus that power. Here, you can feel the dark side at its strongest. He closed his fist so tightly that his long fingernails cut into his palm, drawing blood. You have been chosen because you have great potential, he whispered. Great things are expected of the apprentices here on Koriban. The training is difficult, but the rewards are great for those who succeed. Through power, I gain victory. Cordis reached out and placed his wounded palm on the crown of Bane's bare scalp, anointing him with the blood of a Sith Lord. Bane had seen plenty of blood as a soldier, yet for some reason, this ceremonial act of self-mutilation revolted him more than any battlefield gore. It was all he could do not to pull away. You have the potential to become one of us. One of the Brotherhood of Darkness. Together, we can cast off the shackles of the Republic. Through victory, my chains are broken, Bane thought. But even those with potential can fail, Cordis finished. I trust you will not disappoint us. Bane had no intention of doing that. The next few weeks passed quickly as Bane threw himself into his studies. To his surprise, he discovered that his inexperience with the Force was the exception rather than the rule. Many of the students had trained for months or years before they'd been accepted at the Academy on Korriban. At first, Bane found this troubling. He'd just started his training, and he was already behind. In such a competitive, ruthless environment, he would be an easy target for every other student. But as he mulled it over, he began to realize he might not be as vulnerable as he'd thought. He alone, of all the apprentices at the academy, had been able to manifest the power of the dark side without any training at all. 
He'd used it so often, he'd come to take it for granted. It had given him advantages over his opponents in cards and brawling. In war, it had warned him of danger and brought him victory in otherwise impossible circumstances. And he'd done it all on instinct, with no training, without even any conscious idea of what he was doing. Now, for the first time, he was being taught to truly use his abilities. He didn't have to worry about any of the other students. If anything, they should be worrying about him. When he completed his training, none of the others would be his equal. Most of his learning came at the feet of Cordis and the other masters. Kasim, Oriltha, Shenayag, Hizorin, and Borthus. There were group training sessions at the academy, but they were few and far between. The weak and the slow could not be allowed to hold back the strong and ambitious. Students learned at their own pace, driven by their desire and hunger for power. There were, however, nearly six students for every master, and the apprentices had to prove their worth before one of the instructors would spend valuable time teaching them the secrets of the Sith. Though he was a neophyte, Bane found it easy to garner the attention of the Sith Lords, particularly Cordis. He knew the extra attention would inevitably breed animosity in the other students, but he forced himself not to think about that. In time, the additional instruction he got from the masters would allow him to catch up to and pass the other apprentices. And once he did, he would need to worry about their petty jealousies. Until then, he was careful to stay out of the way and not draw attention to himself. When he wasn't learning from the masters, he was in the library studying the ancient records. As the Jedi kept their archives at their temple on Coruscant, so the Sith had begun to collect and store information in the archives of Korriban's temple. However, unlike the Jedi Library, where most of the data was stored in electronic, hologramic, and holocron formats, the Sith collection was limited to scrolls, tomes, and manuals. In the 3,000 standard years since Darth Revan had nearly destroyed the Republic, the Jedi had waged a tireless war to eradicate the teaching tools of the Dark Side. All known Sith holocrons had been either destroyed or spirited away to the Jedi Temple on Coruscant for safekeeping. There were many rumors of undiscovered Sith holocrons, either hidden away on remote worlds or covetously hoarded by one of the Dark Masters eager to keep its secret knowledge for himself. But all efforts by the Brotherhood to find these lost treasures had proved futile, forcing them to rely on the primitive technologies of parchment and flimsoplast. And because the collection was constantly being added to, the indexes and references were hopelessly out of date. Searching the archives was often an exercise in futility or frustration, and most of the students felt their time was better spent trying to learn from or impress the masters. Perhaps it was because he was older than most of the others, or maybe because his years of mining had taught him patience. Whatever the explanation, Bane spent several hours each day studying the ancient records. He found them fascinating. Many of the scrolls were historical records, recounting ancient battles or glorifying the deeds of ancient Sith Lords. By itself, the information had little practical use, but he could see each individual work for what it actually represented. A tiny piece of a much larger puzzle, a clue to a much greater understanding. The archive supplemented what he learned from the masters. It gave context to abstract lessons. 
Bane felt that in time, the ancient knowledge would be the key to unlocking his full potential. And so his understanding of the Force slowly took shape. Mystical and unexplainable, the Force was also natural and essential, a fundamental energy binding the universe and connecting all living things within it. This energy, this power, could be harnessed. It could be manipulated and controlled. And through the teachings of the Dark Side, Bane was learning to seize hold of it. He practiced his meditations and exercises daily, often under the watchful eye of Cortis. After only a few weeks, he learned to move small objects simply by thinking about it, something he would have thought impossible only a short time before. Yet now he understood that this was only the beginning. He was starting to grasp a great truth on a deep fundamental level, that the strength to survive must come from within. Others will always fail you. Friends, family, fellow soldiers. In the end, each person must stand alone. When in need, look to the self. The dark side nurtured the power of the individual. The teachings of the Sith Masters would make him strong. In pleasing them, he could unlock his full potential and one day sit among them. When the first wave of the attack came, the Republic fleet orbiting the skies of Rusan was caught completely unprepared. A small and politically insignificant planet, the heavily forested world had been used as a base to stage devastating hit-and-run attacks against the Sith forces stationed in the nearby Kashyyyk system. Now the enemy had turned that same strategy against them. The Sith struck without warning materializing en masse from hyperspace. An almost suicidal maneuver for such a massive fleet. Before an alarm could even be sounded, the Republic ships found themselves being bombarded by three dreadnought cruisers, two Corsair battleships, dozens of interceptors, and a score of buzzard fighters. And at the head of the attack was the flagship of the Brotherhood of Darkness, the Sith destroyer Nightfall. In his meditation sphere aboard Nightfall, Lord Khan was directing the assault. From inside the chamber, he could communicate with any of the other ships, issuing his orders with the knowledge they would be instantly and completely obeyed. The chamber was alive with light and sound. Glowing monitors and flashing screens beeped incessantly to alert him to the constantly changing updates on the status of the battle. The Dark Lord, however, never even glanced at the screens. His perception extended far beyond the meditation sphere, far beyond the data spit out by the electronic readouts. He knew the location of each vessel engaged in the conflict, his own and those of the enemy. He could sense every volley fired, every evasive turn and roll, every move and counter-move made by every ship. Often he could sense them even before they happened. His brow was knotted in intense concentration. His breath came in long, ragged gasps. Beads of perspiration rolled down his trembling body. The strain was enormous, yet with the aid of the meditation sphere, he maintained his mental focus, drawing on the dark side of the Force to influence the outcome of the conflict despite his physical exhaustion. The art of battle meditation, 
a weapon passed down from the ancient Sith sorcerers, threw the enemy ranks into chaos, feeding their fear and hopelessness, crushing their hearts and spirits with bleak despair. Every false move by the opponent was magnified. Every hesitation was transformed into a cascade of errors and mistakes that overwhelmed even the most disciplined troops. The battle had only just begun, and it was already all but over. The Republic fleet was in complete disarray. Two of its four Hammerhead-class capital ships had lost primary shields in the first strafing run of the Buzzards. Now the Sith Dreadnoughts were moving in, targeting the suddenly vulnerable Hammerheads with their devastating forward-mounted laser cannons. On the verge of being crippled and left utterly helpless, they were just now managing to scramble their own fighters to ward off the rapidly closing enemy cruisers. The other two capital ships were being ravaged by rage and fury, the Sith battleships. The Ponderous Republic Hammerheads relied on support ships to establish a defensive line to hold off enemy attackers, while they positioned themselves to bring their heavy guns to bear. Without these defensive lines, they were all but helpless against the much quicker and more nimble Corsairs. Rage and Fury cut in along a vector that minimized the number of cannons the Hammerheads could target them with, then swept across their bows, firing all guns. When the Hammerheads tried to change direction to bring more guns to bear, the Corsairs would pivot and double back for another pass along a different vector, inflicting even more damage. The savage maneuver was known as slashing the deck, and without the support of fighters or battleships of their own, the capital ships couldn't withstand it for long. Aid from the Republic battleships, however, was not likely to come. The one on point patrol was already a charred and lifeless hull, obliterated in the first seconds of the attack by a direct hit from Nightfall's guns before it could raise its shields. The other two were being swarmed by interceptors and pounded by Nightfall's broadside laser artillery and didn't figure to last much longer than the first. Khan could feel it. Panic had set in among the Republic troops and commanders. His attack was pure offense. His strategy maximized damage, but left his own ships exposed and vulnerable to a well-organized counterattack. But no such response was forthcoming. The Republic captains were unable to coordinate their efforts, unable to establish their lines of defense. They couldn't even organize a proper retreat. Escape was impossible. Victory was his. And then suddenly, Fury was gone, snuffed out by an explosion that ripped the Corsair apart. It had happened so quickly that Khan, even with the precognitive awareness of his battle meditation, hadn't sensed it coming. The two hammerheads had turned at tangential angles, both somehow locking in on Fury's path simultaneously. One had opened up with its forward cannons to take down Fury's shields, while the other had unleashed a barrage of laser fire at the exact same spot, causing a massive detonation that destroyed the battleship in the blink of an eye. It was a brilliant maneuver. Two different ships, perfectly coordinating their efforts while under relentless assault to wipe out a common foe. It was also impossible. Khan ordered Rage into evasive action. The Corsair peeled off its attack run just as the Hammerheads opened fire, narrowly avoiding the fate of its sister ship. 
The dreadnoughts closing in on the crippled hammerheads were also forced to break off their attack run as four full squads of Republic fighters burst forth from the cargo bays of their supposedly defenseless prey. Even under ideal conditions, it would have been hard to scramble the fighters so quickly. In this situation, it was unthinkable. Yet Khan could feel them. Nearly 50 Auric fighters flying in tight formation, pressing the attack on the dreadnoughts while all four hammerheads pulled back. They were establishing a defensive line. Drawing on the power of the dark side, Lord Khan pushed out with his will to touch the minds of the enemy. They were grim but not desperate. Some were afraid but none panicked. All he felt was discipline, purpose, and resolve. And then he felt something else. Another presence in the battle. It was subtle, but he was certain it hadn't been there at all in the first few minutes of the attack. Someone was using the force to bolster the morale of the Republic troops. Someone was using the light side to counter the effects of Khan's battle meditation and turn the tide. Only a Jedi Master would have the strength to oppose the will of a Sith Lord. Kopesh felt it too. Strapped into the seat of his interceptor, he was spinning and swerving through the Hammerhead's barrage of anti-fighter turret blasts when the presence of the Jedi Master crashed over him like a wave. It caught him off guard, causing him to lose his focus for a split second. For any other pilot, that would have been enough to end his life. But Kopej was no ordinary pilot. Reacting with a quickness born of instinct, honed by training, and bolstered by the power of the dark side, he slammed the throttle back and pushed hard on the stick. The interceptor lurched down and forward into a sharp dive, narrowly ducking beneath three successive blasts of the Hammerhead's ion cannons. Pulling out of the dive, he banked into a wide roll and circled back toward the largest of the four Republic cruisers. The Jedi was there. He could sense him. The force was emanating from the ship like a beacon. Now, Kopesh was going to kill him. Back on nightfall, Khan was also locked in mortal combat with the Jedi Master, though theirs was a battle waged through the ships and pilots of their respective fleets. The Republic had more ships with greater firepower. Khan had been relying on the element of surprise and his battle meditation to give the Sith the advantage. Now, however, both of those advantages had been nullified. Despite his strength, the Dark Lord was no expert in the rare art of battle meditation. It was one of many talents, and he'd worked to develop them all equally. The opposing Jedi, however, had likely been trained from birth for just such a confrontation. The tide of the battle was slowly turning, and the Dark Lord was becoming desperate. He gathered his will and lashed out with a sudden surge of dark side power, a desperate gambit to swing the engagement back under his control. Spurred on by adrenaline, bloodlust, and the irresistible compulsion of their leader, a pair of buzzard pilots tried to ram their ships into the nearest Oryx squadron, determined to break their formation with a suicide attack. But the Republic pilots didn't panic or break ranks, trying to avoid his reckless charge. Instead, they met the assault head-on, firing their weapons and vaporizing the enemy before any harm could be done. On the other side of the battle, 
Kopesh's interceptor knifed through the defensive perimeter established around the capital ship and its precious Jedi cargo. Too quick and nimble for either the Auric fighters or the turrets to get a lock. Penetrating the Republic lines, Kopesh flew his ship into the heart of the main hangar. The blast doors closed a fraction of a second too late. He opened fire as his ship spun and skidded across the docking bay's floor, wiping out most of the soldiers unfortunate enough to be caught inside. As the ship slowed to a halt, he popped open the hatch and flipped out of his seat. Nimbly landing on his feet, he drew and ignited his lightsaber in one smooth motion. The first sweeping arc of the Crimson Blade caught the blaster fire of the two troopers who'd survived the initial assault, deflecting it harmlessly away. Another flip closed the six-meter distance between the Twilligan and his attackers. Another arc of the blade ended their lives. Kopesh paused to assess the situation. Mangled bodies and shattered machinery were all that remained of the crew and equipment that maintained the Republic fighters. Smiling, he crossed over to the hatch, leading into the interior of the capital ship. He strode quickly and confidently through the halls, guided by the power emanating from the Jedi Master like a Tukata drawn by the scent of a squellbug. A security team intercepted him in one of the hallways. The red badges on their sleeves marked them as an elite squad of specially trained soldiers, the best bodyguards the Republic military had to offer. Kopesh knew they must have been good. One actually managed to fire her weapon twice before the entire unit fell to his lightsaber. He entered a large chamber with a single door at the back. His prey was beyond that door. But in the center of the room, a pair of Selkath, amphibious beings from the world of Manan, barred his way with lightsabers drawn. These were mere Padawans, however, servants of the Jedi Master. Kopej didn't even bother engaging them in lightsaber combat. It would have been beneath him. Instead, he thrust a meaty fist forward and used the force to hurl them across the room. The first Padawan was stunned by the impact. By the time he struggled uncertainly to his feet, his companion was already dead, the life choked out of her by the power of the dark side. The surviving Padawan retreated as Kopej slowly advanced. The Sith Lord crossed the room with measured strides as he gathered his power. He unleashed it in a storm of electricity, bolts of blue-violet lightning ripping through the flesh of his unfortunate victim. The Selkath's body danced in convulsions of agony until his smoking corpse finally collapsed to the floor. Reaching the door at the rear of the room, Kopej opened it and stepped into the small meditation chamber beyond. An elderly Syrian female, clad in the simple brown robes of a Jedi Master, was seated cross-legged on the floor. Her creased and wrinkled face was bathed in sweat from the strain of using her battle meditation against Khan and the Sith. Exhausted, drained, she was no match for the Sith Lord, who loomed above her. Yet she made no move to flee or even defend herself. With certain death only seconds away, she kept her mind and power focused entirely on the fleet battle. Kopej couldn't help but admire her courage, even as he methodically cut her down. Her calm acceptance robbed his victory of any joy. Peace is a lie, he muttered to himself as he stalked back through the halls toward the docking bay and his waiting ship. Anxious to leave before nightfall or one of the other ships blew the hammerhead to bits. The death of the Jedi Master turned the tide once more. Resistance crumbled. 
the battle became a Sith rout, and then a slaughter. No longer protected by the power of the light side of the Force, the Republic soldiers were completely demoralized by the terror and despair Khan spawned in their minds. Those who were strong-willed gave up all hope, save that of escaping the battle alive. The weak-willed were left so despondent, they could only hope for a quick and merciful death. The former didn't get what they wanted, but the latter did. Strapped into the hatch of his interceptor, Lord Kopej launched his craft from the hangar mere seconds before the capital ship was destroyed in a glorious and cataclysmic explosion. The Sith losses that day were heavier than expected, but their victory was absolute. Not a single Republic ship, pilot, or soldier escaped the First Battle of Rusan alive. Chapter 10 Bane's power was growing. In only a few months of training, he'd learned much about the Force and the power of the Dark Side. Physically, he felt stronger than ever before. In morning training runs, he could sprint at nearly full speed for five kilometers before he even began breathing heavily. His reflexes were quicker, his mind and senses were sharper than he possibly could have imagined. When necessary, he could channel the force through his body, giving him bursts of energy that allowed him to do seemingly impossible feats, perform full flips from a standing position, survive falls from incredible heights uninjured, leap vertically 10 meters or more. He was completely aware of his surroundings at all times, sensing the presence of others. Sometimes he could even get a feel of their intentions, vague impressions of their very thoughts. He was able to levitate larger objects now and for longer periods. With each lesson, his power grew. It became easier and easier to command the Force and bend it to his will. And with each week, Ben realized he had surpassed another of the apprentices who had once been ahead of him. Less and less of his time was spent in the archive studying the ancient scrolls. His initial fascination with them had faded, swept away by the intensity of Academy life. Absorbing the knowledge of Masters long dead was a cold and sterile pleasure. Historical records were no competition for the feeling of exhilaration and power he felt when actually using the Force. Bane was part of the Academy and the Brotherhood of the Darkness. He was part of the now, not the ancient past. He began to spend more time mingling with the other students. Already, he could sense that some of them were jealous, though none dared to act against him. Competition among the students was encouraged, and the masters allowed the rivalry to drift into the animosity and hatred that fueled the dark side. But there were harsh penalties for any apprentice caught interfering with or disrupting the training of another student. Of course, all the apprentices understood that the punishment was actually for the crime of being careless enough to get caught. Treachery was tacitly accepted, as long as it was done with enough cunning to avoid the notice of the instructors. Bane's phenomenal progress protected him from the machinations of his fellow students. No one could move against him without drawing the attention of Cordus or the other Sith Lords. 
Unfortunately, the extra attention made it difficult for Bane himself to use treachery, manipulation, or similar techniques to attain greater status within the Academy. There was, however, one sanctioned way students could bring a rival down. Lightsaber combat. The chosen weapon of both the Jedi and the Sith, the lightsaber was more than just a blade of energy capable of cutting through almost every material in the known galaxy. The lightsaber was an extension of the user and his or her command of the Force. Only those with strict mental discipline and total physical mastery could use the weapon effectively, or so Bane and the others had been taught. Few of the students actually possessed lightsabers yet. They still had to prove themselves worthy in the eyes of Cordis and the others. Yet that didn't keep Lord Kasim, the Twi'lek Blade Master, from instructing them in the styles and techniques they would use once they had finally earned their weapons. Each morning, the apprentices would gather on the wide-open roof of the temple to practice their drills and routines under his watchful eye, struggling to learn the exotic maneuvers that would bring them victory on the battlefield. Perspiration was already running down the crown of Bane's head and into his eyes as he put his body through its paces. He blinked away the stinging sweat and redoubled his exertions, carving the air before him again and again and again with his training saber. All around him, other apprentices were doing the same. Each was struggling to conquer his or her own physical limitations and become more than just a warrior with a weapon. The goal was to become an extension of the dark side itself. Bane had begun by learning the basic techniques common to all seven traditional lightsaber forms. His first weeks had been spent in endless repetitions of defensive postures, overhand strikes, parries, and counter-strikes. By observing the natural tendencies of his students as they learned the basics, Lord Kasim determined which form would best match their style. For Bane, he chose the Gem So, Form 5. The fifth form emphasized strength and power, allowing Bane to use his size and muscles to his best advantage. Only after he was able to perform each of the moves of Dejem So to the satisfaction of Kasim was he allowed to begin the real training. Now, along with the other students at the academy, he spent the better part of an hour each morning practicing his techniques with his training saber under the Blade Master's watchful eye. Made of durasteel with blunted edges, the training sabers were crafted specifically so that their balance and heft mimicked the energy beams projected by real lightsabers. A solid blow could inflict serious damage, but since a lightsaber did not work that way, each training blade was also covered with millions of toxin-filled barbs too small to see, fashioned from the microscopic ridge spines of the deadly pelco bug a rare insect found only deep beneath the desert sands of the Valley of the Dark Lords on Korriban itself. With a direct hit, the minuscule barbs could pierce the weave of any fabric. The Pelco venom would cause the flesh immediately to burn and blister. Temporary paralysis set in instantly at the point of infection, leaving any limbs struck all but useless. This provided an excellent way to mimic the effects of losing a hand, arm, or leg to a lightsaber blade. The morning was filled with the grunts of the apprentices and the swish, swish, swish as their blades sliced the air. In some ways, it reminded Bane of his military training, a group of soldiers united in the repetition of drills until the moves became instinctive. 
But there was no sense of camaraderie at the academy. The apprentices were rivals, plain and simple. In many ways, it wasn't that different from his days on Apatros. Now, however, the isolation was worth it. Here, they were teaching him the secrets of the dark side. Wrong! Kasim suddenly barked. He had been walking up and down the ranks of apprentices as they trained, but it now stopped right beside Bane. Strike with malice and precision. He reached out and seized Bane's wrist, turning it roughly and changing the angle of the training blade. You're coming in too high, he snapped. There is no room for error. He stayed at Bane's side for several seconds, watching to ensure the lesson had been properly learned. After several hard thrusts by Bane with the altered grip, the Blade Master nodded in approval and continued his rounds. Bane repeated the single move over and over, careful to maintain the height and angle of the blade exactly as Kasim had shown him, teaching his muscles through countless repetitions until they could replicate it flawlessly each and every time. Only then would he move on to incorporating it into more complicated maneuvers. Soon, he was breathing heavily from his exertions. Physically, Kasim's training sessions couldn't measure up to hammering a cortosis vein with a hydraulic jack for hours at a time. But they were far more exhausting in other ways. They demanded intense mental focus and attention to detail that went far beyond what was visible to the naked eye. True mastery of the blade required a combination of both body and mind. When two masters engaged in lightsaber combat, the action happened too quickly for the eye to see or the mind to react. Everything had to be done on instinct. The body had to be trained to move and respond without conscious thought. To accomplish this, Kasim made his students practice sequences, carefully choreographed series of multiple strikes and parries drawn from their chosen style. The sequences were designed by the Blade Master himself, so that each maneuver flowed smoothly into the next, maximizing attack efficiency while minimizing defensive exposure. Using a sequence in combat allowed the students to free their minds from thought as their bodies automatically continued through the moves. Using sequences was more efficient and much quicker than considering and initiating each strike or block on its own providing an enormous advantage over an opponent unfamiliar with the technique. However, ingraining a new sequence so it could be properly executed was a long and laborious process. For many, it would take two to three weeks of training and drills, longer if the sequence was derived from a style the student was still struggling to master. And even the tiniest mistake in the smallest of moves could render the entire sequence worthless. Kasim had spotted a potentially fatal flaw in Bane's technique. Now Bane was determined to fix it, even if it meant hours of practice on his own time. Bane was relentless in his pursuit of perfection, not just in his combat training, but in all his studies. He was a man on a mission. Enough! Kasim's voice called out. At that single command, all the students stopped what they were doing and turned their attention to the Blade Master. He was standing at the head of the assemblage, facing them. You may rest for ten minutes, he told them. Then the challenges will begin. Bane, along with most of the others, lowered himself into a meditative position, legs crossed and folded beneath him. 
Laying his trading saber on the ground beside him, he closed his eyes and slipped into a light trance, drawing on the dark side to rejuvenate his aching muscles and refresh his tired mind. He let the power flow through him, let his mind drift. As it often did, it drifted back to the first time he'd touched the dark side. Not the fumbling brushes he'd had back on Apatros, or during his days as a soldier, but a true recognition of the Force. It had been his third day here at the Academy. He'd been applying the meditation techniques he'd learned the day before, when suddenly, he felt it. It was like the bursting of a dam, a raging river flooding through him, sweeping away all his failings, his weakness, his fear, his self-doubt. In that instant, he'd understood why he was here. At that moment, his transformation from Dez to Bane, from mere mortal to one of the Sith, had truly begun. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. Bane knew all about chains. Some were obvious. An abusive, uncaring father, grueling shifts in the mines, debts owed to a faceless, ruthless corporation. Others were more subtle the Republic, and its idealistic promises of a better life that never materialized. The Jedi and their vow to rid the galaxy of injustice. Even his friends in the Gloomwalkers had been a kind of chain. He'd cared for them, been responsible for them. Yet in the end, what use had they been when he'd needed them most? He understood now that personal attachments could only hold him back. Friends were a burden. He had to rely on himself. He had to develop his own potential, his own power. In the end, that was what it really came down to, power. And above all else, the dark side promised power. He heard the sounds of movement around him, the soft shuffle of robes as the other apprentices rose from their meditations and made their way toward the challenge ring. He grabbed his training saber with one hand and sprang to his feet to join them. At the end of each session, the class would gather in a wide, irregular circle at the top of the temple. Any student could step into the circle and issue a challenge to another. Kasim would observe the duels closely, and once it was over, he would analyze the action for the class. Those who won would be praised for their performance, and their status in the informal hierarchy of the academy would rise. Those who lost would be chastised for their failings as well as suffering a blow to their prestige. When Bane had first begun his training, many of the students had eagerly called him out. They knew he was a neophyte in the Force, and they were eager to take down the heavily muscled giant in front of their classmates. At first, he had declined the challenges. He knew they were the quickest way to gain prestige at the Academy, but he wasn't foolish enough to be drawn into a battle he was guaranteed to lose. In the past months, however, he'd worked hard to learn his style and refine his technique. He learned new sequences quickly, and when Kasim himself had commented on his progress, Bane had felt confident enough to begin accepting the challenges. He wasn't victorious every time, but he was winning far more duels than he was losing, slowly climbing his way to the top of the ladder. Today, he felt ready to take another step. The apprentices were standing three rows deep, forming a ring of bodies around a clearing in the center roughly ten meters in diameter. Kasim stepped into the middle, 
He didn't speak, but merely tilted his head, a sign that it was time for the challenges to begin. Bane stepped into the center before anyone else could make a move. A challenge for Harg, he announced in ringing tones. I accept. Came the reply from somewhere in the crowd on the opposite side. The apprentices parted to let the one challenged pass. Kasim gave a slight bow to each combatant and stepped to the clearing's edge to give them room. Foharg was a Macurth. In many ways, he reminded Bane of the Trandoshans he'd fought in his days with the Gloomwalkers. Both species were bipedal Saurians, lizard-like humanoids covered in leathery green scales. But the Macurths had four curved horns growing from the top of their heads. Early in Bane's training, he'd fought Foharg, and he'd lost. Badly. The McCurth was nocturnal by nature. Like the miners of the night shift on Apatros, however, he'd grown accustomed to an unnatural schedule in order to train with the rest of the apprentices at the academy. During their first duel, Bane had underestimated Foharg, expecting him to be sluggish and slow during the daylight hours. He wouldn't make that mistake twice. As Kasim and the apprentices watched in silence, the two combatants circled each other in the ring training sabers held out before them in standard ready stances. The McCurth's breath came in grunts and growls from his flaring nostrils as he tried to intimidate his human opponent. From time to time, he'd give a short bellow and shake his four-horned lizard's head while flashing his savage teeth. The last time he'd faced the green-scaled, snorting demon of an apprentice, Bane had been intimidated by Foharg's act. Now he simply ignored the posturing. Bane lunged out with a simple overhand strike, but Foharg responded with a quick parry to deflect the blow to the side. Instead of the crackle and hum of blades of pure energy crossing, there was a loud clang as the weapons clashed. Immediately, the combatants spun away from each other and resumed their ready positions. Bane rushed forward, his blade ascending diagonally from right to left in a long, swift arc. Foharg managed to redirect the impact with his own weapon, but lost his balance and stumbled back. Bane tried to press his advantage, his training saber arcing up from left to right. His opponent spun out of harm's way, backpedaling quickly to create space. Bane broke off the half-completed sequence and settled back into the ready position. Back on Apatros, his latent abilities in the Force had allowed him to anticipate and react to the moves of his foe. Here, however, every opponent enjoyed the same advantage. As a result, victory required a combination of the Force and physical skill. Bane had worked on acquiring that physical skill over the past months. As this ability grew, he was able to devote less and less of his mental energy to the physical actions of thrust, parry, and counter-thrust. This allowed him to keep his mind focused so he could use the Force to anticipate his opponent's moves while at the same time obscuring and confusing his enemy's own precognitive senses. The last time he and Foharg had fought, Bane had still been a novice. He had only learned a handful of sequences. Now, he knew almost a hundred, and he was able to transition smoothly from the end of one sequence into the beginning of another, opening up a wider range of attack and defense combinations and more options made it more difficult for the foe to use the force to anticipate his actions. Foharg, despite his terrifying appearance, was smaller and lighter than his human opponent. 
Physically outmatched by the brute force of Bane's Form 5, he was forced to rely on the defensive style of Form 3 to keep his larger opponent's overpowering attacks at bay. Spinning his training saber in a quick flourish, Bane leapt high in the air and came crashing down from above. Foharg parried the attack, but was knocked to the ground. He rolled onto his back and barely managed to get his saber up in time to block Bane's next slashing attack. A chorus of metal on metal rang out as Bane's blows descended like rain. The McCurth kept him from landing a direct hit with a masterful defensive flurry, then swept Bane off his feet with a leg whip, leaving them both supine. They flipped to their feet simultaneously, mirror images, and their sabers met with another resounding crash before they disengaged once again. There were some whispers and mutters from the assembled crowd, but Bane did his best to tune them out. They had thought the battle was over, as had Bane himself. He was disappointed that he hadn't been able to finish off his fallen opponent, but he knew victory was near. Fohar's survival had extracted a heavy toll. He was breathing in ragged gasps now, his shoulders slumping. Bane rushed Fohar again. This time, however, the McCurth didn't back away. He stepped forward with a quick thrust, switching from Form 3 to the more precise and aggressive Form 2. Bane was caught off guard by the unexpected maneuver, and was a microsecond slow in recognizing the change. His parry attempt knocked the tip of the blade away from his chest, only to have it slice across his right shoulder. The crowd gasped. Foharg howled in victory, and Bane screamed in pain as the saber slipped to the ground from his suddenly nerveless fingers. Mindlessly, Bane used his other hand to shove his opponent in the chest, Foharg reeled backward, and Bane rolled away to safety. Scrambling to his feet, Bane extended his left hand to the training saber lying on the ground three meters away. It sprang up and into his palm, and he once again assumed the ready position, his right arm dangling uselessly at his side. Some Sith learned to fight with either hand, but Bane hadn't yet reached that advanced stage. The weapon felt awkward and clumsy as he held it. Left-handed, he was no match for Foharg. The fight was over. His opponent sensed it as well. Defeat is bitter, human. He growled in basic, his voice deep and menacing. I have bested you. You have lost. He wasn't asking Bane to yield. Surrender was never an option. He was simply taunting him, publicly humiliating him in front of the other students. You trained for weeks to challenge me. Fohar continued, drawing out his mockery. You failed. Victory is mine again. Then come finish me! Bane snapped back. There wasn't much else he could say. Everything his enemies said in his heavily accented basic was true, and the words cut far deeper than the blunted training saber's edge possibly could. This ends when I choose, the McCurth replied, refusing to be baited. The eyes of the other apprentices burned into Bane. He could feel them drinking in his suffering as they stared at him. They resented him, resented the extra attention he'd been receiving from the masters. Now, they reveled in his failure. You are weak, Foharg explained, casually twirling his own saber in a complex and intricate pattern. You are predictable. Stop it, Bane wanted to scream. End this! Finish me! 
but despite the emotion building up inside him, he refused to give his opponent the satisfaction of saying another word. Instead, he let the all but useless saber fall once more to the ground. In the background, he could see the Blade Master watching intently, curious to see how the confrontation would reach its inevitable end. The Masters cause at you. They give you extra time and attention. More than the others. More than me. Bane barely even heard the words anymore. His heart was pounding so loud he could hear the blood coursing through his veins. Literally quaking with impotent rage, he lowered his head and dropped to one knee, exposing his bare neck. Despite this, you are still my inferior, Bane of the Sith. Bane. Something in the way Fulharg said it caused Bane to glance up. It was the same way his father used to say the word. That name is mine, Bane whispered, his voice low and threatening. Nobody uses it against me. Fohag either didn't hear him or didn't care. He took a leisurely step forward. Bane. Worthless. An insignificant nothing. The Masters wasted their time on you. Time better spent on other students. You are well named, for you truly are this Academy's Bane. No! Bane screamed, thrusting his good hand out palm forward even as Fohag leapt in to finish him off. Dark side energy erupted from his open palm to catch his opponent in midair, hurling him back to the edge of the crowd where he landed at Kasim's feet. The master watched with an intrigued but wary expression. Bane slowly clenched his fist and rose to his feet. On the ground before him, Fohag was writhing in agony, clutching at his throat and gasping for breath. Unlike the McCurth, Bane had nothing to say to his helpless opponent. He squeezed his fist harder, feeling the force rushing through him like a divine wind as he crushed the life out of his foe. Forharg's heels pounded out a staccato rhythm on the temple stone roof as his body convulsed. He began to gurgle and pink froth welled up from between his lips. Enough, Bane, Kasim said in a cold, even voice. Though he stood only centimeters away from the death throes of his student, his eyes were fixed on the one still standing. A final surge of power roared up in the core of Bane's being and exploded out into the world. In response, Fohag's body went stiff and his eyes rolled back in his head. Bane released his hold on the force and his fallen enemy, and the McCurth's body went limp as the last vestiges of life ebbed away. Now it's enough, Bane said, turning his back on the corpse and walking toward the stairs that led back inside the temple. The circle of students quickly opened a path for him to pass. He didn't need to look back to know that Kasim was watching him with great interest. Bane felt the presence of someone following him down the stairs from the temple roof long before he heard the footsteps. He didn't change his pace, but he did stop at the first landing and turn to face whoever it was. He half expected to see Lord Kasim, but instead of the Blade Master, he found himself staring into the orange eyes of Sirak, another apprentice at the Academy. Or rather, the top apprentice at the Academy. Sirak was a Zabrak, one of three apprenticing here on Korriban. 
Zabrak tended to be ambitious, driven, and arrogant. Perhaps it was these traits that made the Force sensitives of the race so strong in the ways of the dark side. And Sirak was the perfect embodiment of those characteristics. He was far and away the strongest of the three. Wherever Sirak went, the other two usually followed, trailing at his heel like obedient servants. They made a colorful trio. Red-skinned Loke and Yivra, and pale yellow Sirak. But right now, the other two were conspicuously absent. There were rumors that Sirak had begun studying the ways of the dark side under Lord Cordis nearly twenty years ago, long before the academy at Korriban had been resurrected. Bane didn't know if the rumors were true, and he hadn't thought it wise to ask about it. The Iridonian Zabrak was both powerful and dangerous. So far, Bane had done his best to avoid drawing the attention of the Academy's most advanced student. Apparently, that strategy was no longer an option. The rush of adrenaline he'd felt as he'd ended Fulharic's life was fading, along with the confidence and sense of invincibility that had led to his dramatic exit. Bane wasn't exactly afraid as the Zabrak approached him, but he was wary. In the dim torchlight of the temple, Sirak's pale yellow skin had taken on a sickly waxen hue. Unbidden, it brought back memories of Bane's first year working the mines on Apatros. A crew of five, three men and two women, had been trapped in a cave-in. They had survived the collapsing tunnel by escaping into a reinforced safety chamber, dug out of the rock. But noxious fumes released in the collapse had seeped into their haven and killed them all before rescue teams could dig them out. The complexion of their bloated corpses was the exact same color as Syrax, the color of a slow, agonizing death. Bane shook his head, pushing the memory away. That life belonged to Dez, and Dez was gone. What do you want? he asked, trying to keep his voice calm. You know why I am here, was the icy response. Fohark. Was he a friend of yours? Bane was genuinely confused. With the exception of his fellow Zabrak, Sirak rarely mingled with the other students. In fact, many of the accusations Fulharg had leveled at Bane, such as preferential treatment from the masters, could easily be applied to Sirak as well. The Makurth was neither friend nor enemy, was the haughty reply. He was beneath my notice, as were you, until now. Bane's only reply was a steady, unblinking stare. The flickering torchlight reflecting off the Zabrak's pupils made it seem as if hungry flames looked away at the inside of his skull. You are an intriguing opponent, Sirak whispered, taking a step closer. Formidable, at least compared with the other so-called apprentices here. I am watching you now. I am waiting. He reached out slowly and pressed his finger into Bane's chest. Bane had to fight the urge to take a step back. I do not issue challenges, the Zabrak continued. I have no need to test myself against a lesser opponent. Flashing a cruel smile, he lowered his finger and took a step back. However, when you fool yourself into believing you are ready... You will inevitably challenge me. I shall be looking forward to it. With that, he brushed past Bane on the narrow landing, bumping him slightly with the shoulder 
as if unaware of him, then continuing on down the stairs to the level below. The message of that slight bump was not lost on Bane. He knew Sirak was trying to intimidate him and to goad him into a confrontation Bane wasn't ready for. He wasn't about to fall for the trap. Instead, he stood motionless at the top of the landing, refusing to turn and watch Sirak depart. Only when he heard the sounds of the rest of the class descending from the roof did he move again, spinning on his heel and continuing down the stairs to the lower levels and the privacy of his own room. Chapter 11 The next morning, Bane was knocked with the other students on the temple roof as they sparred. Lord Cordis wanted to speak with him privately. He strode through the virtually empty halls of the academy toward the meeting, his outward appearance calm and confident. Inside, he was anything but. All night, as he lay surrounded by the silence and darkness of his room, the duel had played itself over and over in his head. Free from the emotion of the battle, he knew he'd gone too far. He'd proven his dominance over Fulharg by pinning him with the Force. He'd achieved Dune Moke. The McCurth would never dare to challenge him again. Yet, for some reason, Bane hadn't been able to stop there. He hadn't wanted to stop. At the time, he had felt no guilt over his actions, no remorse. Yet once his blood cooled, part of him couldn't help but feel he had done something wrong. Had Fulharg really deserved to die? But another part of him refused to accept the guilt. He had no love for the McCurth, no feelings at all. Foharg had been nothing but an obstacle to Bane's progress, an obstacle that had been removed. He had given himself over to the dark side completely in that moment. It had been more than simple rage or bloodlust. It went deeper to the very core of his being. He'd lost all reason and control, but it had felt right. Bane had spent a long and sleepless night trying to reconcile the two emotions, triumph and remorse. But when the summons came that morning, his inner conflict had been swept away by more immediate concerns. Fohag's death would have repercussions. Combat was supposed to test the apprentices, harden their mettle through struggle and pain. It wasn't meant to kill. Each and every disciple at the academy, from Sirach down to the least and lowest of the students, had the ability to become a master. Each possessed an extremely rare gift in the dark side, a gift that was meant to be used against the Jedi, not against one another. In killing Foharg, Bane had thinned the ranks of potential Sith Masters. He had dealt a serious blow to the war effort. Each apprentice at the academy was valued more highly than an entire division of Sith troopers. He had destroyed an invaluable tool. For that, Bane suspected, he would be punished severely. As he marched toward the meeting that could decide his fate, he tried to push both fear and guilt from his mind. Nothing he did now could bring Fulhark back. The McCurth was gone, but Bane was still here. And he was a survivor. He had to be strong. He had to find some way to justify his actions to Lord Cordus. He was already putting together his arguments. Foharg had been weak. Bane hadn't just killed him, he'd exposed him. Cordus and the other masters encouraged rivalry and dissension among their charges. 
they understood the value of challenge and competition. Those who showed promise, the individuals who elevated themselves above the others, were rewarded. They received one-on-one -on -one instruction with the masters to reach their full potential. Those who could not keep up were left behind. That was the way of the dark side. Fohag's death was no more than a natural extension of the dark side philosophy. His death was the ultimate failure, his own failure. Why should Bane be blamed for another's weakness? His pace quickened and he clenched his teeth in angry frustration. No wonder his emotions were so conflicted. The teachings of the Academy were self-contradictory. The dark side allowed for no mercy, no forgiveness. Yet, the apprentices were expected to pull back once they had bested their opponents in the dueling ring. It was unnatural. He had reached the threshold of Cordis's door. He hesitated, briefly wavering between fear of what his punishment would be and anger at the impossible situation he and all the other apprentices were put in every day. Anger, he finally decided, would serve him best. He knocked sharply at the door, then opened it when the command to enter came from within. Cordis was kneeling in the center of the chamber, deep in meditation. Bane had been in this room before, but he couldn't help but marvel at the extravagance. The walls were adorned with expensive tapestries and hangings. Golden braziers and censers burning heavy incense were scattered haphazardly about to provide a dim glow in the hazy air. In one corner was a large, luxuriant bed. In another was an intricately carved table of obsidian, a small chest atop it. The lid of the chest was open, revealing the jewelry inside. Necklaces and chains of precious metals, rings of gold and platinum encrusted with ostentatious gemstones. Cordis took great pains to surround himself with material goods and the trappings of wealth, and he took greater pains to make sure others noticed his opulence. On some level, Bane suspected the Sith Lord derived pleasure and power from the covetous desire and greed his possessions inspired in others. The trinkets held little interest for Bane, however. He was more impressed with the manuscripts and tomes that lined the bookshelves along the wall, each a magnificent volume clad in leather embossed with gold leaf. Many of the volumes were thousands of years old, and he knew they contained the secrets of the ancient Sith. At last, Lord Cordis rose to his feet, standing tall and straight, so he could look down on his student with his gray, sunken eyes. Kasim told me what happened yesterday morning, he said. He tells me you are responsible for Fohark's death. The tone of his voice gave Bane no clues as to his emotional state. I am not responsible for his death, Bane answered calmly. He was angry, but he wasn't stupid. He chose his next words very carefully. He wanted to convince Lord Cordes not to enrage him. Fohark was the one who let his guard down. He left himself vulnerable in the ring. It would have shown weakness not to take advantage of it. His statement wasn't entirely factual, but it was close enough to the truth. One of the first lessons Kasim taught students was how to build a protective shield around themselves in combat to prevent an enemy from using the force against them. A force-talented opponent could yank away your lightsaber, knock you off balance, or even extinguish your lightsaber's blade without the touch of a hand or weapon. 
A foreshield was the most basic and most necessary protection there was. It had become instinctive for all the apprentices, almost second nature. As soon as the blade was drawn, the protective veil went up. Guarding against the force powers of the enemy and obscuring your own intentions required as much concentration and energy as augmenting your physical prowess or anticipating the moves of your foe. It was that unseen part of combat, the invisible battle of wills, not the obvious interaction of bodies and blades, that more often than not decided the fate of a duel. Kasim says Fokharg did not lower his guard. Cordes countered. He says you simply ripped through it. His defenses could not stand before your power. Master, are you saying I should hold back if my opponent is weak? It was a loaded question, of course. One Cordes didn't even bother to answer. It is one thing to defeat an opponent in the ring. But even once he was down, you continued to attack him. He was beaten long before you killed him. What you did was no different from striking with the blade against a fallen and unconscious foe. Something that is not permitted in the training ring. The word struck too close to home, dredging up the guilt Bane had tried to bury even as he had made his way to this meeting. Cordis was silent, waiting for Bane's reaction. Bane had to make some type of reply, but the only answer he could come up with was a question he'd wrestled with in the twilight hours before dawn. Kasim knew what was happening. He could see what I was doing. Why didn't he stop me? Why not indeed? Cordes replied smoothly. Lord Kasim wanted to see what would happen. He wanted to see how you would act in that situation. He wanted to see if you would be merciful. Or if you would be strong. And suddenly Bane realized he hadn't been called into the master's room to be punished. I, I don't understand. I thought it was forbidden to murder another apprentice. Cordus nodded. We cannot have the students attacking each other in the halls. We want your hatred to be directed against the Jedi, not one another. The words echoed the argument Bane had been having with himself only minutes earlier. But what came next was something he hadn't anticipated. Despite this, Forhark's death may turn out to be a minor loss, if it helps you to achieve your full potential. Exceptions can be made for those who are strong in the dark side. Like Sirak, Bane asked, the words out of his mouth before he even realized what he was saying. Fortunately, the question seemed to amuse Lord Cordes rather than offend him. Sirak understands the power of the dark side, he said with a smile. Passion fuels the dark side. Peace is a lie, there is only passion, Bane muttered out of habit. Through passion I gain strength.